goes to Moses goes to Egypt and he gathers the elders and he uh, and at that point I realized you know what I don't think I have ever heard a sermon on the text that we're going to look at this morning because Jeremy just breezed right over these verses and to be honest I don't think I've ever heard a message from them um, I don't know if they were really ever in the flannel graph in Sunday school. Uh, flannel graph was cutting edge technology in the 1960s. Uh, I saw flannel graph in the 1980s as a kid. And uh, if you don't know what it is, it's that, you know, it's at the very first iteration of flannel graph, I think there's got to be historical science to this stuff. They had paper cutouts with backing on it that would kind of stick to this flannel material. The really cool stuff is what you see there with the landscape. And when I was a kid, that was the stuff that was like, I want to see that stuff. And uh, the cool flannel graph, you know, uh, probably, though, didn't have what we just read this morning. Uh, there's some pretty awkward things uh, in the Bible. And I would say that this, this text ra ranks right up there with probably some of the most awkward things that you can read. You know, the, the, the killing, the foreskins, the, the blood rituals. You know, maybe we should do as Andy Stanley suggests, none hits the Old Testament. No. And I would actually argue that we, it is a disservice to us if we bypass a text like this because there is some pretty significant material that would help us to understand what's going on in Egypt when he redeems his people from slavery. Furthermore, we do ourselves a disservice by rushing over this text because it also gives some explanation for our salvation. And so it's important that we not blow by these things because they're awkward, but that we make sure that we really take the time to understand them because they're not just mere transitions. There's some significance here. And I think we could ask ourselves a couple of questions. Why would God require the lives of Egypt's firstborn as the price for Israel's emancipation. Another question I think that's important to ask ourselves is, will God's anger towards sinners burn indefinitely? And to what end are trials in the life of a Christian? This is really the climax, and we miss and we will fail to truly understand what happens at the mountaintop if we don't understand the climax that's occurring right here. And the next two incidents occur, the next two incidents in which there's explanation for what Pharaoh needs to hear and then what Moses needs to hear that are framed within God's anger. Remember, Moses had hardened his heart three times. And God's anger started to burn. We haven't seen a resolution to God's anger burning. And there's a, in this text, I believe, that resolution. Now, I want to share with you the big idea from this text is that I believe that God's loyal love is on display here and that God's loyal love will not let sin go unpunished. Maybe you've heard it said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our uh, consciences and he shouts to us in our pain. I believe that Moses encounters pain here because he's not been listening 
to softer arguments from God, and he could have taken time to make changes, and he didn't. Now, I want to say off the, at the first, not all suffering and not all pain that we experience are a direct result of our own doing. Some of these are factors that occur within a fallen world in which we live. But we ought to recognize that God will go to great lengths to get you to listen to him. And he loves you in such a way that he will, at times, cause you to experience pain in order to get your heart's attention. Um, discipline is a sign of God's covenantal love for you. Um, Hebrews 12 tells us, My son or daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And don't be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. On my street, there are several girls who like to play and hang out together. And while I've got kind regard for the other girls on my street, I have a particular love for my daughter. And that kind of love is the parameters for why I would discipline her and not discipline the girls on my street. I have a particular relationship with my daughter that makes it so that discipline is understood because it's in a context of loving loyalty to her. Does God have that kind of relationship with Moses? I would say that God is trying to have that kind of relationship with with Moses, and Moses has been resisting that kind of relationship, and it's to his utter shame, it's to his great detriment that he doesn't respond to God in, in, a, in a positive way. Now, this, I believe, these two incidents that we're reading here occur within the context of Moses hardening his heart three times. I believe in this context, I'm going to show you how I would see this, that Moses hardens his heart a fourth time in verse 18 to 20. And I want to say that hardening of our hearts is, first of all, our own fault. There's no one to blame but our own selves. And I believe the fourth time Yahweh keeps talking to Moses in, this, in these verses, yet Moses has stopped talking to Yahweh. Moses will not actually talk to the Lord until after he circumcises or he has his wife circumcise his son in the end. And ironically, Moses descends from the mountain. He's carrying the symbol of God's presence with him, God's life, uh, life-giving power in his hand, the staff. And when he arrives back home, notice that in verse 18 he says, he's going back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. That Moses hides his mission from his father-in-law is significant. And furthermore, 
he doesn't just go out to meet Aaron, he brings his family with him. And I believe this indicates that Moses is still not devoted, and he's not devoting himself to the mission that he's been called to carry out. In one hand, as it were, he has his family in one hand, and in the other hand, he has the staff of God. And this uh, additional subtle detail here, do you remember, for example, Abraham? When he was called to go to the land of Canaan, he was given very specific instruction, instructions. He was told to go to the land, but not to leave the land. And when famine came, he left the land, and he did so in defiance, subtle, passive defiance of God's direct commands. God gave him specific instruction. We don't add to God's law. We don't take away from it either. And in this particular instance, Moses is told to go back, go back to Egypt, but that he would be coming back to Midian again. The removal to Egypt with his family and seeking the peace of his father-in-law indicates that Moses was counting on a failed mission. He was counting on the fact that he would go back to Egypt, but then he would not really ever come back to that area again. And even though Moses has advanced knowledge, he's told in the land of Midian, go a, sec a third time, go to the land of Egypt, because those who are seeking his life are dead. He's still, even having this knowledge, he's still not devoting himself to the Lord's mission. And because Moses has a divided heart, he's looking at Egypt as his final resting place. A divided heart is a is a hard heart. The scripture tells us very plainly in the Sermon on the Mount that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or then or he will love the other. See, he's carrying his family in one hand and he's also carrying the staff in the other. And I think it's important that we understand the nature of our hearts, that a divided heart is a hard heart. You can come to church, for example, because you know you should, because it's your duty. But you might not have a lot of love in it. And that's due to a divided heart. You can get, for example, more joy out of a football game. You might get more joy out of guns. You might get more joy out of a night out. You might get more joy out of your career. You might get more joy out of Minecraft. You might get more joy out of sleeping in. And the answer to the question about duty versus joy is not that I'll just stop coming. Rather, the answer is we ought to be fully devoted to the Lord. That's the real answer. And anything outside of that is a divided heart, and we become hardened when we argue with God about what he has asked us to do. It may require for us, Moses should have confessed his own pride, he should have confessed in his own heart that he has loved other things much more than the God of his fathers. And we may at times need to ask ourselves, what is it that we love more than God 
Do we love our careers more than we love God? And really, in the end, it's, it's our own fault that we are not sensitive to the Spirit because the Spirit is still speaking. It is our own stubbornness and resistance. But I want to introduce you to a new thought, perhaps that you've not considered this morning, a new thought that actually ought to terrify every single one of us. It is a terrifying thought that perhaps as we harden our hearts, it actually may, th may then be permitted by the Lord. Heart hardening is part of the structure of the book of Exodus. I want to just say off the top and right out at the start, this is not something that's easy to understand. And I don't claim to have all the answers. But what I do know is what the scripture reveals. And that's what I have to present. That both Moses and Pharaoh harden their hearts. Each with constructive results. Moses hardens his heart four times. Three plus one. And the scripture says that Pharaoh, as we get to the plagues, we'll spend some time looking at that later, but when we get to the plagues, it describes how Pharaoh hardened his own heart in the four first plagues that come out of God's judgment upon him. There's that three plus one pattern. Remember last Sunday I talked about the priest, the rabbi, the minister. You see, three plus one, we, we get this sense that there's something significant occurring. Three plus one, later in the book of Exodus, we will hear the name of the Lord proclaimed upon the mountain. And in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, we hear that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Did you notice three plus one? I want to let you know God is not obligated to intervene and rescue us from our own stupidity. I've heard people say, and to their own shame, they have said, I didn't go looking for this new truth. It came looking for me. And if God is going to be God, he needs to step in and change it before it's too late. I would say stupid is as stupid does. That is stupid. God may intervene, and that's his grace and his mercy to do so. But he is not obligated to intervene. Because we don't, we have a, such an inflated view of ourselves, the reality is we don't deserve anything other than eternal separation from God in hell forever and ever and ever. Our rebellion is against the Lord God Almighty. 
Now, from our perspective, there is a significant difference between permitting and actively hardening. And I would agree that those are two distinctly different things, and I don't fully understand one or the other. But they're uncomfortable truths that get put into Scripture that we have to look at and try to get our hearts and minds around. In verse 21 to the 23, we hear God speaking to Moses about his intention to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so I, I look at this and I have two questions that come to mind. In verse 21, I ask myself, how does God harden the heart of sinners? Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's pretty straightforward. And it, when he says, all the miracles that I have put into your hand, he's not just referring to the staff that turns to a snake and the snake that turns to a staff or the leprous hand or the water being turned into blood. He's referring to the nine plagues that lead up to the killing of the firstborn, because in the very next verse, he talks about his intention to do that, to destroy Egypt's firstborn. Now, the scripture says that Pharaoh actively hardens his own heart four times. Um, as, we, as you read through it, it's, it's striking. And then when you get to the fifth plague, we hear a change of word in which, a phrase in which it says that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. There's a shift to the passive tense, which means there's, there's an outside actor here. Why the change? Well, on the, sixth, on the sixth plague, the Lord is the one who comes into the foreground, and in the sixth plague, Moses says, as he's describing those events, he says, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. What does this mean? Well, I think at one level it, it means that God knew, God knew. God is not absent from the affairs of men. He knows. Remember, when we read the first couple of chapters, God's name was not in the foreground. And when we get to the end of chapter 2, Moses lets us know that God was there the whole time. God was there when the people were suffering, and God knew. It didn't catch him by surprise. And I want to just simply say that God is never absent in the affairs of mankind. God is not absent when we harden our hearts today or if we harden our hearts tomorrow. God is not absent. What difference does it make if you freely choose to direct to reject God on your deathbed or after the fourth opportunity that you've been given? What difference does it make? You don't have to believe in predestination or election to recognize this truth of God's knowledge. If God knows your future and my future, his knowledge 
does not hinder a pronouncement of judgment today or tomorrow. Moses was privileged with a scary degree of knowledge. You know, we don't have this kind of knowledge. And I think it's a good thing that we don't have this knowledge. And it's why we preach today is the day of salvation. It is not good to put off till tomorrow what you need to do today. God's mercy is for today. And if you hear the word of God preached and yet you still argue with God, you don't know if today will be your last day or tomorrow will be your last day. God may stop calling and actively give you what you desire to have. And I think there's a secondary question. I know that's a pretty significant question. I may not have resolved that in your minds at all. But at least I'm trying to present what's here so that you understand how Moses is processing these things. And I would like to ask a second question here is why would God require the lives of Egypt's firstborn at the price for Israel's emancipation? I want to ask this another way. Why would God require the lives of Egypt's firstborn as the price for Israel's emancipation? Is that a fair price? Is that fair? Well, there are, I believe, three reasons at least for this, and maybe even a fourth. There's given to us in these verses, verse 22, it says that Israel is God's firstborn. Notice that in verse 22 of chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. That's really remarkable. And then secondly, the second reason is that slavery and sin dehumanizes people. And it dehumanizes people to such an extent that they might as well be dead because they're in such bondage and lack of liberty. I think there's a license plate in, this, in America that says, give me liberty or give me death, is there not? Or live free or die, right? We have within us a sense that being in bondage is just as well as being dead. And the cost of freedom is so costly, it requires a life for a life. And we look to those who served in the Second World War and gave their life so that we would have liberty, and we account that as significant. I believe that this, if we don't value the cost of freedom, we will see and devalue our freedom and see it as being cheap and, un and unworthy of, of protecting and fighting for. That might be a rationale for a patriotic Sunday, I'm sure. But the reality is there's no difference between what Christ did and there's a significant difference between what Christ did and what our, 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 our veterans have done in the sense that Christ gave his life so that we might have life. And when the cost of redemption comes to pass, it comes at the pass at the expense of the firstborn of Egypt. And uh, we're going to get to chapter 13 after a little while, but in chapter 13, we see that this cost of freedom is not cheap because it requires the firstborn of Israel to be consecrated to the Lord. I think I need to pause here just to give some adequate explanation. 
when, when God says to Egypt, I'm going to take your firstborn, there is an exchange that takes place. Now the firstborn of Israel are permanently now dedicated to the Lord. That was a significant cost to take the lives of those Egyptians, but it's not a cost that is to be taken lightly. It requires the consecration of Israel to the Lord forever. If God is going to wield this kind of justice at the expense of the Egyptian firstborn, God will be righteous and he will require payment in kind. You know, in the New Testament, we talk about that because of Christ's sacrifice, we are not our own, that we are bought with a price, and therefore we must glorify him in our body, which is not our own, it's the Lord's. The cross is such a costly expense for our eternal life it would be wrong for us to assume that we could now just live any way we want to. The reality of the cost of the cross requires our personal love and responsiveness to him. In Romans chapter 12, Paul said, it is our reasonable service that we give our lives entirely to him. And all of these images in the ancient past have relevance to the present. I think there's something else going on here. Why would God require the lives of Egypt's firstborn, but then not require the life of his messenger? Moses has got a hard heart. Moses is resisting. How can Moses go and tell Pharaoh that his children are going to die if Moses is not willing to give up his own life to the Lord. God can't let Moses keep hardening his heart. There's something that's got to give here. And so when I see in verse 24 to 26, God will soften Moses' heart. Moses is in such open rebellion that if the Lord doesn't intervene, he's going to have to get a new messenger. Someone else is going to have to go. And I will just explain briefly what's going on here. Moses was a descendant of Abraham. He ought to have circumcised Gershom. He ought to have done this as a matter of following Abraham's God. But Moses has been obstinate, and this is being shown throughout this sequence of events, he's been obstinate, but yet he's also been unfaithful to the God of his forefathers. And the Lord is still angry with Moses for his obstinance. And so we read in verse 24 that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, you have to fill in the name Moses there because it's a little ambiguous. And the reason it's ambiguous is because the focus is not on Moses so much as it is on the wrath of God itself. Moses is in a very vulnerable place because he has refused to be devoted to the Lord. 
And coming to Moses' rescue is his wife, Zipporah. Gershom is circumcised right there with a flint, and the foreskin is placed on her husband's thighs, and a pronouncement of dedication is made, and she says, a bridegroom of blood, and that's directed to the Lord on Moses' behalf. It was a statement that I'm no longer going to be outside of your family. I'm going to be in your family. I'm going to be a blood relative to you. Now, we don't, we don't use symbols like that in our day to talk about, you know, joining a family. But this was a mediatorial act done by Zephora to include Moses in the covenant relationship with Yahweh. And this is the climax, because Moses here has finally been humbled. We don't know what happened. Some disease, maybe he got infected with something, we don't know. But his life was on the line. And Moses now is coming to a conclusion, I can't keep arguing with God. And Moses, now salvation comes through the suffering of a woman's offspring. Did you catch that? Moses' salvation comes through the suffering of a woman's offspring. That little baby suffered as he was being circumcised. And that circumcision became a substitute for Moses so that he would not die. Do you hear the echoes of the garden? in which the offspring of the woman would bring salvation. And every time a little boy is circumcised, there is a picture of the Son of God who will suffer blood and gore so that we might be set free. There is a glorious picture here in the midst of such weird-sounding stuff. And I see in this the beauty of the suffering of Christ, the offspring of Eve, who will bring salvation for the world. I want to share, since this is the climax and Moses has been resisting, I want to share a testimony of a, uh, an immigrant named Clifford Benson. In the 70s, he immigrated to Nova Scotia, Canada, from Northern Ireland. His family was on the run. He was looking for asylum for his family because he was the target of the IRA, the I Irish Republican Army. He was running from assassination. They wanted him dead. And he answered an advertisement in an a, a, a Irish newspaper that was looking for Irish operators to run quarry equipment in Nova Scotia. And so he emigrated to Canada and went to Nova Scotia, and it was a close call for him to leave. Bullets had actually penetrated the sides of his house at various times, and he nearly lost his own life. Coming over to Nova Scotia, um, he had obviously driven on the wrong side of the road all of his life. And working late nights, he, he was driving home, and he got on the on-ramp, which was actually the off-ramp, and got going on the wrong direction on a four-lane highway. He was nearly hit by a tractor-trailer, and nearly lost his life in that event. Not long afterwards, he had another close call. He was operating an asphalt machine, and he had to do some, some maintenance on it, and a friend lifted him up in the front load of a bucket truck, uh, a bucket loader, so he could get up higher and inspect the, the equipment, 
and just as he was inspecting this asphalt equipment, it burst open and poured out on him and scalded him. The operator of the, the, the heavy equipment reacted quickly and just dropped the bucket and he fell to the ground. And listen to what the guy said when he got up to him on the ground. He said to this, he said, Clifford, what in the world is God trying to tell you? And after his recovery, <coughs> his, he and his family began attending a Bible study at my father's church. He had grown up a Protestant kid, kind of like how many Catholic kids grow up just hearing scriptures. But there was one scripture that kept coming to his mind. It was the scripture that God told Noah after he had, was to build the ark. God said to Noah, he said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And after so many close calls, Clifford knew that at some point, God would stop calling him. And so in that moment, he humbled himself, and he asked Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Savior. I see in this moment Moses humbling himself too. Zephora and his children return back home to, with, to the father-in-law. And we read about that in Exodus 18. And we see now Moses going out to meet his brother and the two men going now on mission together. God softened the heart of Moses. But ultimately, this is because God wants to reconcile us. He also wants to reconcile Israel because of a loyal love. In this closing paragraph, there are two pieces that are more important than perhaps all the other words in this text, and that is, first, that the people believed, and then second, the Lord visited the people. The people believed. That's what God had said would happen. Like, that's exactly what God said would happen, and God's word will never return void. The purpose for which it was sent out, it will accomplish. And Moses, here being reconciled to the Lord, God's word went out to make sure that his messenger would be on side. God's word also unsettled him in the mountain. It disciplined him. It also reconciled Moses. God's word will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. Secondly, the word visit here is important, and it doesn't mean I'm going to visit Grandma for Thanksgiving. It is a technical word used to express his intention to make good on promises that he had made in the past. Israel had been suffering underneath of the weight of oppression. God knew it. But it has more the idea of God is now showing up. He's showing up to act upon his promise that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God knew, and he was coming to redeem. He was coming to reconcile. He was coming to restore. And when God binds himself to a people, he's not going to let them go. God would not simply let Moses continue to rebel against him. He loved Moses. 
And the difficulties that were introduced into his life were designed to chasten him, to discipline him, and ultimately to reconcile him and bring him to himself. I believe that God's loyal love will not let sin go. And we see that. We see that in the most amazing way through the cross of Christ. Christ is the expression that God will not let sin go. He will not let it be unjustly brushed aside. But he will also not let go of us in the process of redeeming us and saving us. His loyal love cuts both ways. And so there is a story told of a young boy who had a toy boat and had let it drift out of his reaches standing off the edge of a bank, and this little boy did not see the adult nearby, and this adult came and started throwing rocks in, and the boy became horrified. Why is he throwing rocks at my boat? And then all of a sudden he realized that the rocks were falling on the other side of the boat, creating ripples. So gradually the boat came back to shore. Many times when we stray from God, it appears he's throwing rocks at us. But what he's really doing is he's using those ripples to bring us back home. Discipline is not God's way of saying, I'm through with you, I want nothing to do with you. No. It's God's way of saying, I want you. And I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to myself. I believe it's important that we not rush over texts like this, as awkward as they may appear, but that we would take the time to evaluate them and understand them. I believe a lot is missed if we ignore the precious word of God in all of its fullness.